Turn in your Bibles with me this morning to Luke chapter number 2. I'm sure I can knock you over with a feather that that is going to be the chapter we're going to be in this morning. But uh, I believe it would be the mind of the Lord today. Over the past three weeks we have been, or two weeks, we've been preaching through a little short series. We have had our uh, minds trained upon this thought. We've been examining ends in the Bible. There are four occasions in the Word of God where an end is mentioned. I find that in and of itself fascinating, uh, that through all human experience and all of the long uh, record of God's Word, only on four occasions did the Holy Ghost see fit to bring up the matter of an end. Uh, you think about in your life and mine how many times that we found ourselves at a, at a hotel, staying, at a lodging place, and uh, for some of us it's a regular occurrence, and Others of us, it might be somewhat rare, but pretty much all of us probably been to one more than four times if we've got a little bit of, of age on us. And it's interesting that in all the Word of God, there'd only be four times that it's mentioned. So I want to take a few moments this morning and preach to you on what is probably the most familiar instance of an inn in the Word of God. Uh, Luke chapter number 2, and I'd like to begin reading in verse number 1. We'll read down to verse number 7. The Word of God says that it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, every one into his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea under the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. Let's pray together. Father, I thank You, Lord, for this day. And uh, Father, we've come together to celebrate the birth of Your Son, the greatest event in all of human history, second only to the cross of Calvary. Lord, we've come with our hearts trained upon this thought and this goal this morning that we might magnify that great act of love in condescending, uh, incarnating Himself, tabernacling Himself amongst us, being robed in flesh, uh, being uh, made uh, like man that He might redeem man. And Lord, I want to thank You this morning for that great act of love and compassion I pray for each and every heart that is here today. Lord, I do not know anyone's heart's condition. And Lord, I don't even really, to be honest, know mine the way that You know it. Father, we just know that You have uh, knowledge of our needs this morning. You know what we need in our hearts and lives. You know where we may stand at aught with Thee. You know, Lord, where in our devotion and life there may be something lacking. So Father, we know that we're in good hands, fit hands, capable hands when we place ourselves in Your hands this morning to examine us, to deal with us, to convict us, and to instruct us in Your Word. And I pray that You do that this morning, Lord. I pray that You move on hearts for Your glory. May we not do anything to quench the Holy Spirit. May we not do anything to dishonor the Word of God or the name of Christ. For it's in His name that we ask it. Amen. As I said a few moments ago, we've been studying this thought of ends in the Word of God. And I think that probably the scarcity of references, if nothing else, is a great indicator to me that there is significance. Uh, for instance, there are certain thoughts and words in the Word of God that you can study and you won't necessarily find a great long lengthy 
uh, significance. Uh, for instance, the word the, everywhere you turn on the Bible, there's the word the. You can find the word a everywhere. Uh, when you go through the Word of God, there are other words that are just common words that occur throughout the canon of Scripture. Not to say that they're not there on purpose. Of course they are by inspiration of the Word of God. But their presence there may not bear any intrinsic significance. However, when there are certain things that are only mentioned a few times, I think that God is trying to get our attention and cause us to draw our focus upon these things. I think it is by no accident. God could have mentioned them in four million times, but He mentioned it four times. He could have mentioned them no times, but He mentioned them four times. And so I think they carry some significance. As we've been studying through this thought, we've made a couple notes to maybe frame this in a way that might be meaningful to us in our lives. You know, when I think about what an inn is, and an inn is just an old way of saying a hotel, a lodging place where travelers might find refuge on their journeys. When I got to thinking about it, Brother Ken, it started to remind me in some ways of the Christian's experience in this life. Now you might scratch your head and say, well, preacher, what do you mean? How does it remind you of what it means to be a Christian? How a Christian experiences uh, this life and this world and his relationship with God? Well, let me give you three reasons. One, when I think of an inn, I note, number one, that it is a temporal place. Now, somebody's going to say, whoa, wait a minute, preacher. My salvation is not temporal, and let me say amen to you right there. I believe we're eternally saved if we're saved at all. Amen. I believe we're born again uh, by the promise of the immutable Word of God. I believe we are eternally secure in His grace. I believe we are kept by the power of God under the day of redemption. I don't mean to convey to you at all that I think we can have salvation and then lose salvation. It's not what I mean to say. What I do mean to say is this, that the way that we experience our relationship with Christ is distinct in this life in a way that it won't be when we're in His presence. Let me give you an example. The Bible tells us He is our intercessor. But there's going to come a day we won't need any intercession. We'll be in His presence. The Bible tells us that He is He is our mediator. Uh, that He has given Himself uh, for our sins and not for our sins alone, but for the sins of the whole world. That we have an advocate with the Father. But one of these days we'll be released from this body of sin. Uh, we'll be given a glorified body and we won't need an advocate anymore. Amen? Uh, right now when we communicate with Him, we pray to Him. But one of these days, Paul said it best, I believe, or the Holy Ghost said it through Paul the best. He said, now we see through a glass dark, but then face to face. Now we know in part, but then shall we know even as also we are known. What I'm saying to you this morning is this, the Christian life as we know it will only be the way that it is in this life. One of these days when we get to heaven and worth the Lord, uh, there's going to be a lot of suffering, a lot of heartache. There's going to be a lot of shortcomings we won't ever have to deal with again. Somebody ought to give an amen to that. Can I tell you something? 2020 don't exist in heaven. Somebody say amen. There's coming a day that we're going to be in His presence and everything's going to be changed. It's going to be different. We'll be transformed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye and our vile bodies be made like unto His glorious bodies. So what we experience of the Christian life in the way that we experience it is confined to this world. You see, it's just a temporary thing that we're experiencing. Let me say number two, that an end reminds me of the Christian's experience in this life because not only is it a temporal place, but it is a hopeful place. When a person is traveling from one location to another, they look with great hope and great anticipation towards a place of lodging towards an end. This is something that I think is uh, quite lost on us today because we live in a day of such great technology. 
Transport and travel is something that's been made so easy. Uh, there's people, you could leave here today and be on the other side of the planet uh, before you'd even know it. We live in a day of mass and speedy transport, but at this time in human history, a person could not travel without there being an inn to stop at, a place where they could find some safe haven. When they looked for an inn, they knew they had found a few things, for instance. Let me say number one, when they looked for an inn, they looked uh, hopefully towards one because it was a place of refuge. Uh, next week, if the Lord will permit, and if uh, and if He doesn't return first, we're going to be preaching on Luke chapter 10, and we're going to talk about that parable of the Good Samaritan and how that uh, this man, when he was traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, what does the Bible say? It says he fell amongst thieves. And whenever he's given safe haven, the Samaritan takes him and binds up his wounds, and he carries him to an inn. Why did he take him to an inn? Because it was a place of refuge. If he had left him there, he could have been hurt, wounded, and assaulted, and killed even further than the assault that he had already experienced. When a person found an inn, they found a place of refuge. Can I tell you this morning that for us as individuals, as human beings, when a person finds life in Jesus Christ, they found a place of refuge. Man, that's encouraging to me today. I, I, and I don't mean to make it sound like I got it any worse than anybody else. I don't. I got it better than lots of folks. But let me say it's good to know there's a refuge in Jesus Christ. In a world that is assaulting and bombarding, uh, everyone, I'm glad to know there's safety in Jesus Christ. Listen, His name is a strong tower. We run into it in our saved. It's a place of refuge. Number two, it is a place of rest. When a person, one of the reasons they would look hopefully and, and, and with anticipation to an end is because it's a place they could finally sit back and recline and put their feet up and rest and sleep and get the rest that they need. Well, that reminds me of Jesus Christ because He is our rest today. Uh, now, when we talk about rest, we're not talking about idleness, but what we are saying is this, and the Hebrews writer said it the best way. He said uh, that if a person rests, he hath ceased from his own labors. Uh, in other words, likening the rest of the Christian uh, to what God did when He rested on the seventh day. He didn't rest because He was tired. He rested because He was finished on the seventh day. By the same token, as a believer in Jesus Christ, I rest in the finished work of Christ on Calvary. I'm not trying to work my way to heaven. I'm not trying to baptize my way to heaven. I'm not trying to give my way to heaven. My way to heaven's already been made by what Christ did on Calvary. And I can rest in that. Is it no wonder that Jesus Himself said, Come unto me all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He said, Take my yoke upon you. He said, My yoke is easy and my burden is light. He said, I will give you rest. Can I tell you something? Listen, if you're trying to work your way to heaven this morning, go ahead and just quit doing that and trust in what Jesus did on Calvary and rest in Him this morning. So it's a place of rest. But then I would say this, it was hopeful because it was a place of resource. Uh, they would look to get to an end because there they could find the food and the supplies that they would need to be able to journey on farther. In fact, one of the great impediments to human travel throughout human history has been the inability to carry enough food with you to get you from point A to point B and not enough places in between uh, to be able to stop and get the supplies that you need. We don't even think about it right now, man. You passed, you passed a hundred restaurants on your way to church this morning. And you probably stopped at two or three of them. Amen. But I, they're everywhere. But throughout human history, that was not the case. And when a traveler found an inn, he knew he found a place where he could get all the resources he needed. I like this. You listen. All the resources he needed for the journey. And I'll tell you something. When you find life in Jesus Christ by putting faith in His finished work, you found a source of all the resources you need for the journey of this life. Man, He's got everything you need. I could quote a hundred verses here. Maybe I couldn't quote them. I could read them. Uh, but I could reference a hundred verses. But how about I just reference this one? My God shall supply all your need 
according to His riches and glory by Christ Jesus our Lord. And I ain't just talking about temporal resources either. I'm saying He's got everything you need. He's got the peace that you need. He's got the strength that you need. He's got the provision that you need. He's got the promises that you need. He's got the wisdom that you need. Everything you need in this life you'll find in Jesus Christ. So it is a hopeful location. Then I'll just mention this and get on to my message. It reminds me of an inn because an inn was an essential location. See, if you were going to get from point A to point B, you can only get there if there was an inn and if you stop by there. Can I tell you, listen, if you're going to get from your broken, sinful, lost condition that you and I have been born into, and you're going to make it to God's heaven, to the presence of God, to a righteous position with the Lord Jesus, there's only one way you're going to do it, and that's by way of Jesus Christ. He's the only way. He's not just one way or a good way or even the best way. He is the way, the truth. And the life. So when I see an end, it gets me to thinking about how we live our life as a Christian and what it is to be a Christian in this life. When I read through the occasions in the Word of God where ends are mentioned, I find that there's great significance to all of them. As I said, there were, there were four mentioned. The first is mentioned in Genesis 42, whenever Jacob's sons are traveling from Egypt back to the land of Canaan. You remember when they get there, uh, one of them opens up their sack of, of corn and they find that the money that they had used to pay for that corn had been returned to them and had been placed back in that sack of corn. You say, preacher, now what does that mean? Well, I would say it this way. When Jacob's sons got to the end, you know what they found? They found that the price had already been paid. You know, when a lost person comes and assesses this thing called Christianity, the life, of Christ in us, this matter of salvation of the lost soul. You know, the first thing that they'll find is they'll get there and they'll find that the price has already been paid. Jesus has already done for us that which we could not do for ourselves and He has paid the price of redemption. The next is a little troubling, if I'm to be honest, because it's found in Exodus chapter 4. And uh, Moses has been commissioned of God to go into the land of Egypt and deliver the children of Israel from Egypt's bondage. But before he goes... The Bible tells us that in the way by the inn, the Lord met him and sought to kill him. That's troubling, man. I mean, that scares me to think about. But that's what happens, what the King James Bible says. And while he was there, uh, evidently the issue at hand was that Moses, though he was to be the leader and redeemer of Israel at that time, uh, he had not been obedient to God's command to circumcise both of his sons. He had circumcised one, but not the other one. The Bible tells us that his wife Zipporah uh, grabs her son, grabs a piece of rock, and hastily uh, performs the ride upon him, and, and then God releases him because that act of obedience has been performed. And I thought about it this way. You know, when Moses got to the end, you know what he found? He found that the perfect Lord demands a pure life. Now, I want you to listen carefully to what I'm about to say. I'm not saying that you've got to live right to be saved. But I am saying this, that if you're going to be the Christian that God desires for you to be, it's going to mean purity. It's going to mean consecration. It's going to mean obedience to God. If somebody told you when you got saved that God didn't care how you lived, I'm sorry, they lied to you. Uh, your salvation is not predicated on you keeping promises to God or doing good works. It's all predicated on His promise to us and the work that He has done. But don't you think for one minute that God doesn't care how you and I live our lives? He absolutely does. The perfect Lord demands a pure life. Next week, if the Lord will uh, permit us to, we'll spend a little time in Luke chapter number 10 whenever this man that has been wounded uh, in the parable that our Lord told is, is scooped up by the Good Samaritan and taken to an inn. And there uh, he is laid up for, for convalescence and healing and, 
and uh, the price is paid for the medicine and all the things that he needs. You know what he found? I ain't going to preach it because I'm going to preach it next week. But you know what he found? When he got to the end, he found out that healing could happen. In fact, one could maybe say this, that Jacob's sons, they got to the end and found the price was paid. We could call this the end of redemption. That the price had already been paid. Moses got there and he found out that the pure Lord, or the perfect Lord demands a pure life. We could call this the end of requirements. That there are some requirements on your life and mine. When that man in Luke 10 gets to the end, he finds out that healing can happen. I'd call this the end of restoration. Here in our text this morning, we find out it was not man that approached to the end. Though Mary was there, though Joseph was there, they were not the guests of honor on that night in Bethlehem. Rather, it was God Himself robed in flesh that had come to the end that night. You know what he found out when he got there? He found that the accommodations were already occupied. I wonder this morning in your Christian life and mine if we have room for the God that saved us. I wonder in your Christian life and mine if when God seeks to show up big in a big way in our lives, when He seeks to fill up the substance of our life, our time and our devotions and our aspirations, I wonder if he gets there and sadly finds out there's already something in its place. Can I just tell you this morning, this is how I see the condition of the vast majority of Christians. We ain't empty. We're so full of everything else that we ain't got room for God anymore. Now there may be a broken and lost individual wandering the streets that that senses and feels deeply their emptiness. And if they don't have Christ, then that of course is true. They are empty of that which is meaningful. But I mean Christians today. I'm talking about God's people today. I'm talking about us today. Our problem is not that we're empty. Our problem is we got so much clutter in our lives that we find no room for God in the midst of it all. I want you to notice three things with me this morning then we'll be done. Uh, that we find in this text. And some of them implicit and some of them explicit. It's always been fascinating to me, and I remember reading a commentator say this years ago, and, and you know, sometimes you'll hear something and it'll just strike you like a thunderbolt. You just never, it had never dawned on me, but you know, of all the characters in the Christmas story, the character we're going to preach about today, in a sense, is the one character that's not even in the story. You notice nowhere does it say there is an innkeeper. But we just all sort of assume and, and, and imagine that there was an innkeeper. And I, I think that's maybe a fair assumption, but does it not speak something about uh, the, the nature of our hearts that we have fabricated, we have created this avatar of rejection of God? Could it be we see in that imaginary character something of our own selves? We've created him because we'd say this, well, if God's not on the inside, somebody must have told him he couldn't come in. And doesn't that remind us that we look at our lives and we understand instinctively that which is missing and that which is lacking and we have to indict ourselves and say, if God's not in my life the way that He ought to be, it must be because I have not let Him in. If that's what's going on in our hearts, I'd say amen to our hearts because that's the truth. What can we learn as we approach this passage? Well, I'd say three important things and I'll mention them and be done. I'd say the first thing we could notice here is that evidently God desires a place at the end. Now some of what I'm going to say is going to seem a little elementary and you can go ahead and turn your hearing aid off or you know whatever you need to do. But but I'm just I want you to stick with me. It may not be a big deal to you. It is to me. I'm not as smart, all right? So it's fascinating to me to even consider we, we just brush over. We just sort of read through it. We don't ever stop and take note of the fact that God being at this end tells us that God desired to go into this end. You say, preacher, well, what does that mean to me? Well, here's what it ought to mean to both me and you. It ought to remind us that God does indeed desire a place in our lives. 
I'm talking about the God of all creation, the God that, that pulled back the nothing and flung out into existence the everything, the God uh, that has created all things that are in the world. That God desires to have a place in your life and mine. What an amazing truth. How, how could we say we know that? Well, we could probably share a few obvious things, but let me notice three things. One, I think in this text it is shown, number one, by His providence. Notice how the first five verses, this ought to make you feel good because I'm going to preach through the first five verses here in about two minutes, all right? And then we've only got the last two. So, And if you've been around here, you know how long I, I, I sometimes preach on two verses. But notice with me the first five verses here. The Bible says it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus. Now don't skip over that. Caesar Augustus is the leader of the world at that time. He's literally by the world's metric the most important man walking around. And the Bible tells us that God moved on His heart to send out a decree. What was that decree? That all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Serenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed. Note that. All went to be taxed. Everyone into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea under the city of David which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. Now, if all we were reading was the incidental actions randomly generated by human circumstance, then that might not be significant. But you see, you and I understand this this morning, that nothing that has happened throughout human history, and especially it could be said that nothing that pertains to God's redemptive plan has ever been by accident. Caesar Augustus didn't just wake up one day and say, you know, it might be good for the Roman Empire if we started taxing people. Uh, Serenius didn't wake up one morning and say, you know, it'd be good if we had a taxation take place. All the world didn't wake up and just decide to go to the native city of their birth. All of this was instigated and orchestrated by the providential hand of God. I wonder if it dawned, and I'm sure it did not on that innkeeper, all that God did to bring Joseph and Mary to the door of His inn that night. God had literally moved nations, empires, and peoples to bring Mary and Joseph to that place. I'd say this, looking backwards through history, we could say God must have wanted to get in that end because look at all that He did to facilitate His being there. Now somebody's going to say, well, that's good, preacher. I, that, that's wonderful. But now wait a minute. You know God did a lot more so that He could be a part of your life and my life. Listen, He didn't just move on the heart of a Caesar so that He could be a part of our life. He moved on the heart of His Son and He sent His Son to die in your place and mine. He didn't just send people from one nation to another nation. He sent His Son from the glories of heaven down to a manger in Bethlehem and a virgin's womb. I mean, He went above and beyond to try to show you and I that He's interested in our life. All of human history, and I, if I'm not careful, we'll get bogged down. We got bogged down in Sunday school. We was talking about Literature and different things that relate to the story of God's redemption for humanity. But suffice it to say, I'll give you the cliff notes of it. That uh, when you go back throughout all of, of literature and human history, what you'll find is just mere sad echoes of the story of God's great redemption of humanity through Jesus Christ. This story of God showing up at the end of your life and my life, it didn't begin a week ago. It didn't begin a month ago. It didn't begin a year ago began all the way back in the Garden of Eden. God has orchestrated all that He has so that He might save you and I and be present in our lives. He didn't just save us 
so that He could then scoot us off the scene and dismiss us and ignore us. He saved us so that He might indwell our lives and be a part of us and who we are and guide us and shape us and love us and grow us. He's done all this that He might be a part of your life. I think you ought to recognize this morning evidently God loves you or shouldn't have done or wouldn't have done all that He did for you. So I think by His providence we know that. Number two, I would say this, by His presence we know this. Some of you all are going to realize this painfully in the next few days when family shows up unannounced on your doorstep. And when you see them, you won't have to wonder why they're there. You'll know why they're there. They'll be carrying cheap Christmas presents and fruitcake and you'll know exactly why they've showed up at your door. And the very fact that they're there will denote to you that they want to come in. By the same token, the very fact that God showed up here, not just that He orchestrated things that He might be able, but the fact that He went there. You know, God does everything on purpose. God does everything on purpose. Can I tell you something? God knew before they ever showed up that they'd be turned away from the end. So why did He send them to the end in the first place? God knew that they were going to be turned away. You know how I know that? Because God knows everything. Why did He send them to the end? That night, I can tell you why. Because He wanted to communicate to those inside that He was here and He wanted to come in and be in their presence. Can I tell you, listen, you say, Preacher, how do I know God's interested in me? Well, not just because He gave His Son to die for you, although that would be enough in and of itself, but He's also given His Spirit to indwell you. He's given His Scriptures to, to enlighten you. He has made possible the fellowship and communion of creature with Creator, of man with Master, of us with God. The very fact that God speaks to your heart, the very fact that God stirs your heart, the very fact that the Holy Ghost stirs your heart, the very fact that God speaks to you through His Word ought to tell you that God wants to have a part in your life. He's not interested in having a long-distance relationship with us. If He was, He wouldn't have sent the Holy Ghost to live inside of believers. So I would say by His presence, but then I would say this by His plea. I'm going to make another imaginative assumption here, and if you don't think that's good enough, go ahead and disregard it and move on to the next part of the sermon. But I'm going to imagine when they showed up, they did something that we all do when we get somewhere. They probably knocked. I think it is a safe assumption to imagine that they would not know there was no room in the inn had they not knocked and found out in the first place. It's not like they pulled up and saw all the donkeys parked in the parking lot. They knocked on the inn, and then somebody, whoever it may have been, came and said, I'm sorry, but we are completely full tonight. We have no room how suggestive it is that Joseph and Mary stood there knocking. Because it reminds me, you know what a knock is. A knock is a direct plea. That's why you knock on a door. You're saying, hey, come to the door. Let me in. Address me. Acknowledge me. You're, you're craving and, and, and communicating that you want that person that's inside to come where you are or you yourself want to come where they are. It is a plea. And I would say this, that when we read the Word of God, we're not short of pleas from God to be a part of our life. I mean, I, I could give example after example, but can I just remind you in the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ in chapter number 3, when the church is reprobate and apostate and lukewarm and corrupt, the picture that we have of Christ is not of Him in the midst, reveling in the corruption, nor is it of Him seated in heaven about to strike them down in wrath, but rather of Him standing on the outside, knocking to come in. He said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. By the way, can I just, I, listen, if you got born again from that, uh, somebody uh, testified to you from that verse of Scripture, you got born again, it's good, alright? 
Ain't no reason to question it. But can I just remind you that verse is not really written to the lost individual. It's written to the church. And what it communicates is that they had pushed him out. You know why they had done that? This is a whole other message. You know why they had done that? Because they said, I am rich and increased with goods. Isn't that what it says, Brother Charlie? And I have need of nothing. Here's God knocking on the door of their church. And they say, no thank you. We have everything we need inside. I think the very fact that He's knocking tells you He wants to come in. And I would say this, we have no need of doubting that God wants to be a part of our life. Only the blind or willfully foolish would imagine that God's not interested in them if they've heard the Gospel of Jesus Christ. When you hear all that God did to save you and I, how could we ever imagine that He wants to be anything other than our Lord and Savior and God? How could we ever imagine He doesn't want to be a part of our life? If you think God's not interested in being a part of your life, you have convinced yourself of that. Not God has told you that. God wants to be a part of your life. In fact, He wants to be all of your life. He don't just want to know you from a distance. He wants to be in fellowship with you. He wants to be the very heart and soul and substance of your life. So when I read this passage of Scripture, I note that God desired a place at the end. But then let me say this. I think it ought to be said this morning. Not only did God desire a place at the end, I'd say God deserved a place at that end. The thing that has always baffled me about this, when you read this passage of Scripture, is you think to yourself, didn't they know who He was? And the answer is no. They didn't know who He was. Had they known who He was, you know what they probably would have said? And I hope this is true. They probably would have said, if anybody don't get a place in this end, at least the Son of God ought to have a place in this end. I think even they would have acknowledged that he deserved a place in this end. Now, this is going to be simple. We're just going to move through it quick. But why did he deserve a place in the end? And again, we could probably give a hundred reasons, but but I'll just give you three. Number one, he deserved a place in the end because of his person. Because of who he was. Even if he had never done anything for anybody, even if he wasn't never going to do anything for anybody, he should have had the place of preeminence in that end for no other reason than just because... He was God. Let me tell you, I, all of us would admit, I like to think this is true as Christians, that God's been far better to us than we deserve. Can you say that this morning? You're with me this morning still? Can you say that? God's been better to me than I deserve? Can you say that this morning? Let me tell you something. Even if He hadn't been, He's still worthy of everything you could give Him. We could all, I hope, acknowledge, uh, I shouldn't say all, I don't know the heart's condition of anyone here, but But if you claim the name of Christ, if you say you're a Christian, then we would all have to admit that by that singular act of redemption and salvation, He deserves all that we are and all that we have. But you know, even if He hadn't done that, just by Him being our Creator, just by Him being God, He deserves a place in your life. So I would say because of His of His person, just that He's God, He deserves it. You're His creature. He is your Creator. And if you want to be what you were intended to be, God needs to be at the center of your life. But then I would say number two, because of His provision. Now again, the innkeeper couldn't have known this, but you and I know this, reading the Word of God. We know that however it was throughout this family's history that they came to have the means and the funds to buy land and build an inn and and run this proprietary business and do all of these things. However it happened, we know it only could have happened if God had permitted it. One of the great follies of human arrogance is to believe, and this is not to imply that that merit doesn't matter, it does. What we do with our life is significant. 
but to believe that we are not all, every one of us, but for the grace of God, only a heartbeat away from utter catastrophe and calamity. I, listen, I'm not saying there aren't people whose life is a, is a mess because they've made it a mess. There are people whose life is a mess because they've made it a mess. But I'm saying this, even if you do everything that you're supposed to do, were it not for the grace and mercy of God, your life would still be a mess. If you're anything, if you're anybody, you're only that because God has permitted it. The Bible tells us that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And I like to think that little ragtag inn in Bethlehem would be part of the fullness. You know why it was he deserved a place in the inn? Because it, like everything, belonged to him. And that man couldn't have had it had God not permitted and blessed him to have it. And I'm trying to say to you this morning, whatever you and I enjoy in life, we only enjoy it because God has granted it to us. Man, how dare we hold hostage the blessings of God? And how often we do that. How often we take things that God has blessed us with and use it, weaponize it against the work of the Spirit of God in our life and let it be a stumbling block. It shouldn't be the case. Instead, it ought to be, Lord, everything I've got, it's yours. It's yours. It belongs to you. I've only got it because you gave it to me. Your health belongs to God. Your wealth belongs to God. Your mind, however many of us still have one, belongs to God. Every bit of it is His. I'd say because of His provision. This man wouldn't have had it. But then I would say this, that you know why he deserves a place in the end? Because of his plan. Now, I want you to stick with me with this. Had the innkeeper invited Joseph and Mary into the inn, God would have no doubt blessed him and used his life beyond measure. Now, you might say, preacher, you don't know that. Sure I do. I know it because God does that with everyone's life, that, that they turn it over to him. In short, if the innkeeper had opened his inn to God, then God would have done more with it than he alone could have ever hoped to. Uh, there's, and I won't get into it, but you go back and start to trace this thing through the Old Testament. There's, there's decent scriptural evidence that you can trace back the source of this end to a time in the book of Jeremiah whenever God in His mercy and in His providence allowed for an individual to keep a plot of land. It was turned into that end. But listen, even all of that set aside, I would say this, that had this man been willing to allow God into the end, he would have undoubtedly been the better for it. Can I tell you that God will do more with your life than you will? God will do more with your health than you will. He'll do more with your business than you will. He'll do more with your children then you will. This is such a basic fundamental truth that somehow we miss as we journey through life. God is better at it than you are. Say, better at what, preacher? Everything. It don't matter what it is. He's better at everything than you and I are. When we take something and place it into the care of God, we're placing it into the highest level of care that would be possible. We worry that if we give things over to God, He's going to mess it up with it like He's ever messed anything up. God has never made a mistake and He will not start with you and He will not start with us. So it's no surprise that Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 2.9, as it is written, I have not seen, nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love. I know we could talk about the story of God's redemption in the greater context of that passage, but I'd say the greater principle through all of it is this, if you'll just give God your life, He'll do more with it than you could ever imagine. Ever imagine. So I say that God deserves a place at this end. But then, the, the truth that we have to acknowledge, I mean, it, it's, it's undeniable. We have to notice it because it's, it's the whole reason we're, we're talking about this. It's the whole reason it's significant is that not only did God desire a place at the end, not only did God deserve a place at the end, but sadly, and you know this to be true, we learn that God was denied place at the end. 
question being this, what could make a man turn God away at the door? Can I ask you this question this morning? What would make you and I turn God away at the door of our life? Now, I trust that you know Him as Savior. And let me say, if you don't, He stands at your heart's door and knocks to save you this morning. If you don't know Him as Savior, then the only thing standing in the way is whether you will submit your heart to Him. He's willing to save you, to change your life, to transform you, to redeem you, to pardon you of your sins, to indwell you by His Spirit, to make you a child of God. He'll do all of this for you if you'll just come to Him. I'm talking about saved folks today. What would make a saved man? Someone that claims that the one on the other side of that door is their Lord and their God and their Master. What would make that person turn God away? When I read this passage of Scripture, I notice there are some causes that they turn them away. And these seem really, really simple. These are not things that are groundbreaking, but I think they're suggestive. Why did he turn them away? And I think the first one, the obvious one, is this. He turned them away because of occupants. So what do you mean, preacher? He turned them away for the very reason he evidently gave, because there was no room in the end. In other words, whenever God got there, there was already somebody else sleeping in his bed and sitting in his chair. Man, our life is such a mess. And you know why? It's because we've let other things set in God's seat. We've let other things govern over us. We've let other things be the very heart of our passion. We've let other things distract us from what God has called us to do. There was no room for Christ because other guests had taken all the rooms. You know, sometimes we allow the matters of life to crowd out the place of Christ in our hearts and priorities. You, you know, by the way, I'm not saying anybody in that inn was a bad person. I'm not saying that when that innkeeper accepted those people into the inn, that he did anything verifiably immoral. You know what he did? He just did what he does as an innkeeper. You know, in your life, in my life, if we just do what the world does, that's enough to crowd Christ out. We've got to be different. There's a reason the Bible tells us that we are to, we are to be peculiar. We are to be different. We are to be, uh, the Bible uses the term strangers, pilgrims and strangers. We've got to be different from the world around us. Being like the world around us will only produce in us what the world produces. Until we live like Christ, until we behave differently, until we consecrate our lives to a different level, we're going to just wind up looking exactly like the world does. How did the world treat Jesus? They left Him standing in the cold. We think that because we are Christians, we can live like the world does and somehow it will supernaturally produce a better effect in us. It doesn't. The truth is there's Christians that are that are eat up with worldliness and they look just like the world in so much that if you were to look at them, you wouldn't even know whether they're a Christian or not. You wouldn't know. In fact, the Bible tells us in the book of 1 Peter that a man can get in that condition in such a pitiful shape that he himself forgets he was saved from his old sin. In other words, just... Being born again, listen carefully, just being born again does not produce Christian behavior in a person's life. If it did, everybody would act like a Christian. Sad truth is we don't. What does it take? Well, I'd say this, man, I don't know what was going on in that end, but I bet whatever it was would have all changed if Jesus had walked through that door. I understand at that moment it's not... Jesus having been born and walking as a man, it's Joseph and Mary, but you understand that if they had been aware of who that was, it would have changed everything. The sad truth is, just Him doing what an innkeeper does was enough to crowd God out that night. 
And just you and I living like the world does, just doing what we think is expected, just, just letting the mundanity of life crowd Him out is enough to push Him out. I'm not saying there's anybody in here with some black sin in your heart. There may be. I don't know. But I'm saying even if there's not, just living like the world does will crowd out Jesus in our life. So I would say the occupants. Number two, I would say this. I would say He was denied a place because of opportunity. Now, I want to be careful with what I say here. I don't think we can necessarily criticize the innkeeper for this, but it's obvious that he sold out the capacity of the inn in order to make money. Now, it's not wrong that he did that. It may have not been explicitly wrong, but it is suggestive of one of the things that crowds out God in our life. Now, again, I don't think, I don't think innkeepers innkeeping is so nefarious. But it is interesting. You know, the Bible tells us the love of money is the root of all evil. It doesn't say the love of money, or it doesn't say that money is the root of all evil. It says the love of money. What motivated him to sell that into capacity that night was what would motivate any person to do it, and that's to make a dollar. An honest dollar. He's not a thief. But isn't it suggestive to you and I that the pursuit of money would be enough on this night to leave Jesus out in the cold? And it's a reminder to you and I that the temporal pursuits of this life, if we're not careful, they'll displace Christ in our life. Man, I've seen, I was a youth pastor for a while and I saw it time and time and time and time again in kids' lives and, and I really felt for them because most of the time they didn't have the influence, the right influence in the home to safeguard them against it. But they'd, they'd grow up, they'd hit, you know, 16, 17 years old and it was time to go out and get a job and they didn't understand it. They had parents that were pulling them to go do that and that's not wrong for them to go work. The Bible says if a man doesn't work, he shouldn't eat. But they had no balance in their life. They had no support in their home to encourage them to get the kind of job that wouldn't rob them from the house of God. And it wasn't long. I mean, Brother Kerry can tell you, he's seen it. I've seen it. Everybody that's worked with young people has seen it. Fervor, devotion, passion towards God. They hit 16, they get a car, they get insurance, they get a job, and they're in the wind. Now, can I tell you a little secret? As someone's been, been doing this for a decade now, it ain't just teenagers. It ain't just teenagers. This is just the nature of, of, of humanity. And if we're not careful, we'll allow otherwise legitimate and noble pursuits, things that at times the Bible even commends, if we get it out of balance, it'll push Christ out of His proper place. So I would say that it was because of, of occupants, and I'd say it was because of opportunity, but then I would say this, I'd say it was because of obliviousness. Had they known, surely had they known who He was, they would have kicked every person out, given the whole in by himself. Surely had they known who he was, they would have never sent him to the stables, to the caves where the animals were kept. Surely if they had just had a right perspective on who he was, they would have given him his proper place. And surely in your life and mine, if we just recognize who he is, we'd give him his proper place. Doesn't it tell us that we don't give Him His proper place and maybe we've lost sight of just how glorious He is? Just how wonderful He is? How could anything compete with Him? And yet we've let things compete with Him. How could anything push Him out? And yet we've let things push Him out. You know what will get us back in the right place? Vance Havner used to say this. People, Vance Havner go around all over the country preaching revivals and seeing God move in a great way. And people once asked him, they said, Brother Havner, how do you define Revival. You've preached in thousands of revivals. You've seen God save tens of thousands. How would you define revival? And he said, this is how I define revival. It's God's people falling in love with Jesus all over again. You know why he's standing on the outside of some of our lives? Because we've allowed, because of iniquity, our love has waxed cold. We've left our first love. We've grown distracted by the things of the world. 
and we've not kept Him in His proper place. I'd say there were some causes for this, but then, and let me just mention these in passing, I think there were some costs. I think when we don't let God have His proper place, we wind up the loser for it. We wind up the worst for it. Can I tell you something? No matter how you treat God, He'll still be as much God as He is today, tomorrow. No matter how you and I treat God, it's not going to change who He is, but it will change who we are. And I thought about the cost that... What did, what did He miss out on? And I thought, number one, about the amazement that He missed out on. I mean, think about it. They could have watched the Son of God enter this world. They could have watched the greatest miracle short of the resurrection that ever occurred. They could have watched what was in many ways the culmination of all of the prophecies of old if they had just let Him in. Let me tell you something. You never know what you miss out on when you won't give God His bright place in in your life. Some of us, we accuse God of not showing up in a big enough way. And I wonder if He hadn't showed up and we've left Him standing out on the porch. And He wants to work in our life. But we won't allow Him to take the center stage. I thought about the amazement that they missed out on. But then I thought about this, the announcement that they missed out on. Later on in this passage, and you know this to be true, and if the Lord will let me, I'm going to preach on these shepherds tonight. But you know how that there was a, a heavenly annunciation that takes place out in the field. The, the Bible tells us that, a, that a, a group of angels appear to shepherds that were keeping watch over their flock by night. And you know the you know the message that that they give the peace on earth goodwill towards men Joe Biden would say and you know the thing right you know the thing and they give this great glorious annunciation about the incarnation of the Son of God have you ever asked yourself why did they go out and appear to those shepherds now we know the basic answer to this because those shepherds would then go and tell everybody now God is somewhat efficient what I mean by that is this He is efficient in spiritual matters. I have no reason to believe, and you might you might disregard this, that's fine if you do, but I tend to believe had they been in the end that night, those angels might not appear to those shepherds. They might have showed up right in the middle of that end where there's a large group of people already gathered and made that proclamation to them. Wouldn't it have been quicker to spread the news had there been a room of a 100 people or 200 people or however many instead of a handful of shepherds out in a field? Now, thank the Lord He did appear to the shepherds, but He might have never appeared to the shepherds. He might have appeared to the people in the end if they had just let God in. I would say it this way. When I think about the amazement, it reminds me that people that let God in their life and let Him rule and reign supremely in their life, they experience things others don't experience. But I'd say this, people that allow God to do that, they hear things that other people don't hear. God teaches them things that He don't teach other people. Imagine the great truth that they missed out on that night. So far as we know, so far as we know, the people in that end never knew what took place, likely directly under their feet. Never even knew about it. Bands of angels appeared to declare the shepherds in the field, but the very people closest to the event were completely unaware of it. Makes you wonder what all God's doing in our life that we're oblivious to because we've not let him in. But then I thought about this. You're going to laugh at me when I say this. That's okay. But I would say they missed out not only on the amazement and the announcement, but I think they missed out on some advancement. Now, please, stay with me here. I've never been to the Holy Land. I'm going to go one day when Jesus is on the throne. But I've never been. But, you know, I know a lot of people that have gone, and they talk about how every every site that you visit in the Holy Land, there's all these people there that are that are, you know, Selling postcards and selling souvenirs. Amen, Brother Ken. All these things. And <laughs> Brother Ken ain't afraid to make a dollar, is he? And, and, and 
all, all these people that are that are that are selling these things and and all of these sites most of them they don't really have a clue you know they'll they'll go along and they'll say this is where blind Bartimaeus was they don't know they got no clue but but people come from all over the world and visit these locations now, I don't know about you but if I'm an innkeeper and my real only interest is in trying to make a good living I can't imagine but think that probably one of the best things that could ever happen to my innkeeping business is for about a generation or two from that point, people to start to get the idea that God Himself was born at that end. In fact, I don't know this, maybe this is cynical of me, but I kind of imagine that innkeeper, his family, his descendants, might have been able to make a good bit of money off of that had they allowed God into the end. Now listen carefully to what I'm about to say. I don't want you to think I'm talking about filthy lucre. But I am saying this, in his goal, which was running a business, providing for his family, that's why anybody runs a business, imagine how much farther he would have got if he had let God in that in. I'm saying all advancement in life, whatever it may be, derives from God dwelling richly in our life. Anything that we want to see accomplished in our life, if it should be accomplished, it can be accomplished by putting God as the centerpiece of our life. Imagine how much we miss out on it. God sitting there saying, man, I'd love to do this for you, but I cannot reward your disobedience. I cannot condone and endorse your, your, your life and, and how you're living. And he's, he's desiring to do things in our life, but we will not permit him because we won't put him in the proper place that he so justly deserves. The best way you and I can get ahead, and I'm not saying getting ahead means big bank accounts or nice clothes or anything like that, but I'm saying the best way we can get, the farthest we can possibly get, is by putting God in His proper place. God desires to be at the heart of your life. God deserves to be at the heart of your life. The question I have today is, does He have a place at the center of your heart and life? If He doesn't, you know what you ought to do? You ought to put Him right back where He belongs today. You ought to open your heart to Him. And you ought, to, you ought to get your priorities straight. If there's anything that has displaced Him in your life, you ought to get it out this morning. Ask forgiveness. Ask, ask God's forgiveness. Repent of it. Put it away. And allow Him to dwell supremely in you. Let's bow together. As a musician comes to play, the altar is open. And you know you can come. You don't have to wait for the first note to be played. If God has spoken to your heart, I want you to respond, move, be obedient unto Him this morning. Father, pray that You'd bless this invitation. I pray that... Lord, Your people would yield unto You, that our hearts would be open and submitted unto You. Father, if there's one amongst us that's lost today, I pray they'd not leave this place in that condition. I pray that they'd open their heart unto Christ, that they'd be born again.